Could it point to Christ? Well, it's interesting. Jesus himself said, I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And then on the road to Emmaus, he spoke to two disciples. And it says, beginning at Moses, which we are reading. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. Beginning at Moses. And all the prophets he expounded to them all things concerning himself. Be awesome to be in on that Bible study. To hear Jesus unravel the truths to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Tonight we're in Leviticus chapter 24. I want to get through 24 and 25. I say I want to. That again is my intention. Listen, I can go all night, but I won't because of time commitments that we have. One of the great truths of the scripture that I am fond of thinking of is the one that says we are co-laborers with Christ. Isn't that interesting? Co-laborers with Christ, as if he needs us. As if God would say, I can't get my work done without them. And yet, though God is transcendent and sovereign and omnipotent, he has condescended to the using of very imperfect vessels. That ought to cause you to rejoice. Causes me to rejoice because I am an imperfect vessel. I'll never forget the time when my son wanted to help me build a fence. Now, I don't mean a long fence. This was a gate, basically, of about spanning five feet. And listen, I'm not an expert at this, but I just sort of, you know, saw how long it was measured, went down to the store, picked out some wood, figured out how I would frame the thing, cut the thing, build the, uh, take the hinges, build the gate with the mechanism. It was a fun project. It took, you know, it took some calculating on my part because it's not second nature. I had to really scope it out. And then I finally got it all ready to go. I knew exactly what pieces of two by four I would cut. I sunk my posts. I poured the cement. Then my son came out and he said, Daddy, let me help. And I looked at him and I had a couple different thoughts. I thought, man, this is going to take a long time if he helps. Now, I'm, this is true confession. This is, that's my nat- human nature. So I thought, oh, man. Then I quickly thought, absolutely. I want your help. I want to do this with you. Now, I don't need his help, but I sure wanted his help. To watch him hold that hammer and miss. And take the wood where it shouldn't go. And all of the things that perhaps limited my ability to get the job done expediently. Nonetheless, to have him as a co-laborer was thrilling because of the fellowship that I had. I did it with him. Now, in reality, he didn't do all that much. But afterwards, he pointed to it and he said, I built that. I said, you sure did. Co-laborers with Christ... Now, God has allowed you and I to co-labor with Him in reaching a lost world. Pretty big task. Imagine what these twelve fishermen thought as Jesus said, Okay, fishermen, go into all the world. Go everywhere. Preach the gospel to every living creature. You think, 
Now, Lord, you're limiting yourself by using these country bumpkins from Galilee. These aren't PR men. They're not media people. They're not strategists. But they were obedient. And just like I took my son to help build that fence and he got a thrill out of it, Jesus took those 12 men and he commissions you and I to spread the gospel. God could do things a lot more efficiently in one sense. You know, he could say, forget these Christians. Half the time they don't do what I ask. They don't spread the gospel. Forget them. I'm not going to use them. Why should I? There's too much to get done. I'm going to send angels to do the work. I'll have them fly all around the earth with megaphones, PA systems. I'll string speakers from the moon. You know, billions of watts. I'll crank it up to ten and now hear this, earth. This is God. And have the angels do a big display show. Get their attention. Frighten them a little bit. That'll get the job done. But no, God uses us. Imperfect vessels. Now one day, when we're gone, and God judges the earth in a period known as the Great Tribulation Period, Bible tells us that the everlasting angel will fly around the globe and proclaim the everlasting gospel to all those who dwell on the earth. Every tribe, every tongue, every kindred. But until then, God is choosing to use us. In the 24th chapter, we have yet another example of how the children of Israel were to cooperate in the work of the tabernacle. It was not just the Levites it was not some select group of clergymen who were doing the work, but all of them were able to help a little bit. See, that's the point. Can we save the world? Can we, this local group tonight sitting here, can we save all the world? Will every person in the world be saved through us? Well, no, obviously, but we can do something. We have our generation, we have people in our neighborhood we have opportunities in mission fields around the world where doors are open and even some where doors are closed. We can't do it all. We can do some. And I want to do what we can do. It's not the amount. It's what God can do through you. Great example of that is those loaves and fishes. What are these among so many? Truthful answer, not much. That's the truthful answer. A few loaves and fish. What are they among thousands of people? Nothing. A lunch for maybe one, two, if the guy was selfless and wanted to share with somebody and they were both on a diet. What are they among so many? Not much. Put him in the hands of Jesus. Let him touch and multiply that which is very meager and it becomes something that feeds the multitude. What is your life among so many? You've asked that question, I bet. What could I possibly do? There's a big needy world out there. What am I? What am I? Nothing. But what can God do through me? That's the great part. And so, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring to you the pure oil of pressed olives for the light 
to make the lamps burn continually. That's something they could do. It wasn't much. But those lamps need to be burning around the clock in the tabernacle, in the holy place, that first vestibule before the Holy of Holies. And so, instead of just saying, okay, tribe of Levi, you're in charge of getting that oil. You go out, find the olives, build the press, crush them. No, let the children of Israel also be partakers together of this. It gives everybody a chance to participate together in something. I like that. It's not the amount, necessarily. It's the involvement of everyone. I love the story of the passing of the offering plate out on one of the Indian reservations. As the plate was being passed, it went by an old fellow, an old Indian man. The plate came up to him. He looked at it and he said, put it a little lower, would you? And so the usher put it lower. Indian looked at it and goes, mm, lower still. Man put it lower. He goes, no, put it all the way down. So then he finally got up from his seat and stepped in the plate. So that's all I have to give. I don't have any money, but I have myself to give. What a great offering that was. It's not the amount, it's the heart, it's the involvement. He gave what he had, that was just himself. And so these Israelites could go out, harvest olives, buy olives, glean, even if they were poor, for free they could get olives in somebody's field because the commandment was that you don't reap all of the fields. You leave some for the poor. Well, even the poor could get some olives, crush them, and bring some oil. So everybody could be involved. Outside the veil of the testimony, verse 3, in the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning. Before the Lord continually, it shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. Aaron was the high priest. He was the guy in charge of making sure those lamps were burning. There were seven lamps on a lampstand, the menorah. If you'd walk into the holy place, you'd see it. You couldn't do it unless you were a Levite. But if you could, you'd walk in, and there on your left-hand side, you would see this lampstand of pure gold and cups of olive oil that had to be replenished so that those things were burning continually. The high priest was in charge, walking into the holy place, making sure that they were lit. Now that is a picture of Jesus Christ from Revelation chapter 1. John sees a vision of Jesus glorified, gleaming, walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands with seven stars in his hand. And in Revelation chapter 1 verse 20, Jesus tells him what they mean. The seven golden lampstands are the seven churches that Jesus was writing letters to, Revelation 2 and 3, to the churches of Asia. And the seven stars in his right hand, they are the messengers, the angelos, perhaps meaning the pastors of those local churches as those letters went out. But here we see Jesus, our great high priest, walking among his church. It's all in typology, but that's the fulfillment of it. And you shall take fine flour. Now that's wheat. Anytime you read a fine flour in the Bible, it's not barley, the coarser stuff. Wheat is what gives the fine flour. And bake 12 cakes with it. 
Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on the pure table before the Lord. That is the pure table of gold. Now, if you'd walk into the holy place, on your left would be this golden lampstand. On the right would be this table of bread, showbread. And you shall put pure frankincense on each row. That is, before each row, not actually on the bread, but in front of it. That it may be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath, Friday evening, as Sabbath began, and Saturday, he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel. So they had to also replenish or bring the the flour and uh, get the bread ready. For an everlasting covenant, it shall be for Aaron and his sons. They shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. The frankincense that is used comes from a tree in the Middle East, and it's from the bark where this frankincense is extracted. It's a very aromatic spice. The tree branches out and has white star-like flowers, but it's not from the center of the tree or from the flowers that this is extracted, but from the bark. It's shaved off, dried, pressed, and it's very uh, sweet-smelling. And... uh, they would put that in front of the bread, and the bread would be eaten by the priest every week and then replenished. Now, there's a couple of interesting things. In the holy place of the tabernacle, there was one source of light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. There was one table of showbread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. There was one door and one door only. Jesus said, I am the door. Now, this showbread is something that David ate. Some of you remember 1 Samuel chapter 21. David is fleeing from King Saul. Saul's after his hide. David takes a few of his men, escapes. He goes to a place called Nob, N-O-B, not far from Jerusalem. The tabernacle is there. The high priest at that time was Ahimelech, or Ahimelech. And Ahimelech uh, saw David coming, got a little worried. Uh, David, why are you here? Are you on terms of peace? Uh, what's up? He goes, oh, I'm, I'm out. And uh, I'm on a mission from the king, and we're hungry. We don't have our supplies. The priest said, well, I don't have much bread. The only bread that I have is the holy bread, which is only lawful for the priest to eat. David said, hey, give it to us. The priest finally conceded, saying, if your men have been separate from women for three days, they can eat. So they took, and they ate some of the showbread, and they escaped from the hand of Saul. And Jesus brought this up later on, didn't he? When the Pharisees were in the grain fields, and they saw Jesus and his disciples taking ears of grain and eating it, they kind of popped up from behind some of the stalks of corn, I suppose. Hello? It's your local Pharisee here. And they said, why do your disciples do that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus said, don't you guys read the Bible? I love his responses. Haven't you ever read? You guys are experts in the Bible. Don't you read? 
Haven't you read about David? How when he was hungry, he and his men ate the sacred showbread, which is not lawful except for the priest to eat. He ate it. That was unlawful. Then he said, God is working on the Sabbath. I'm working. The Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. He brought out this incident of David at Nob, referring also back here uh, to Leviticus chapter 24. It's a perpetual statute. Verse 10. Now, verse 10 begins the only other narrative in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is filled with laws and regulations for Levites. There's only two places in this book where there's an actual story written. One is about Nadab and Abihu. It's a narrative that's not a good narrative. It's about people who disobey God, profane fire before the Lord. And the other one is this one. This also is not that great of a narrative. It's a good lesson. It's from God, obviously, but uh, it has a grim ending. Now, the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the children of Israel. And this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed so that they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemith the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. They put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. Now, the mom was a Danite of the tribe of Dan. She was an Israelite. Her husband was an Egyptian. We don't know that her husband was even with her because when the children of Israel left Egypt, not all of the Egyptians who had relations with Israel came with them. But there were offspring. And this man was... Half Israelite, half Egyptian. Part of the mixed multitude. Who, as you remember, created a lot of problems for Israel as they were going through the desert. It was the mixed multitude that always began the grumbling and the complaining. Why have you brought us out here to perish in the wilderness? We should have stayed in Egypt. Weren't there enough graves in Egypt where you could bury us that you had to bring us out here to starve to death? It was the mixed multitude. Not fully God's people, not fully Egyptian, kind of in the middle. The stragglers. You might say in modern spiritual terms, those who are carnal. Fence-sitters. Mugwumps. Their mug being on one side of the fence, their wump being on the other. They can't make up their mind where to walk, what to do. We don't know what happened, but this member of the mixed multitude, this young man got in a fight. And perhaps, you know, it was over the fact that he wasn't pure Hebrew. Maybe in a fit of rage, he cursed the name of God. Now, the name of God to the Jews is very, very sacred. So sacred, they don't even say it. If you're Orthodox, uh, my tour guide in Israel, when he writes me a letter or sends me a fax, he puts G slash bless you. He won't write God. G dash slash bless you. When the strict Orthodox Jews came in the Hebrew Scriptures to the Tetragrammaton, as it is called, Y-H-W-H. We think it's pronounced Yahweh, but we're not certain because it was never disclosed. It was so sacred it was 
the ineffable name of God, unpronounceable. When a Jew would come to the name of God, he would simply bow and say, Hashem, the name, instead of saying the name of God. Well, here's a guy who blasphemed the sacred name of God. And so they put him into custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. Now, just a, a further application on this guy, okay? This is one of the reasons that Israel got pulled in so many different directions because of mixed marriages. Remember when Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem and he found out that some of the people were intermarrying those who weren't sold out to the God of Israel. They were not Jewish. They were not covenant people. And whenever you do that, you pull a person in two directions. Here's a son who was pulled in two directions. If his dad stayed in Egypt and mom went in the wilderness, he's thinking, oh, should I stay or should I go? Oh, I'll go. It's an adventure. Then he starts complaining. Then he starts blaspheming. And his own outlook and hardness of heart influences others. He's pulled in two directions. So they were not to marry outside of their race because their race was a covenant race. The application for us is those of us who are believers should not have an unequal yoke, the Bible says, with a non-believer. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. A yoke is a device that goes over an animal, an ox. And if you want to pull a plow, you get a number of animals, sometimes two. You make sure that the animals are about the same height, about the same build. You want an equal yoke. You want to tie them together so that they're both working at the same pace rather than working at a different pace or pulling in opposite direction. So, when you find a mate, when you go out to date a person, don't have the attitude that some Christians have. They get frustrated. God hasn't given me a husband or wife. None around this church. None that are really any good, good enough for me. So there's this cute babe. Oh, she's an unbeliever, but she's cute. And I'll witness to her. I'll put a track, you know, in her sandwich tomorrow morning or at lunchtime or I'll... I'll make sure that I tell her about the Lord. Oh, we'll get married and it'll be all right. She'll come to Christ. I have seen so often where people have that mentality and what happens is the opposite. She drags him down. The unbeliever drags the believer down. I'm not trying to say she or he in any kind of sexist sense. The unbeliever drags the believer down. Could be vice versa. So don't be unequally yoked. Now, some of you are unequally yoked because... You have come to Christ since you've established the human relationship of marriage. It's very difficult. Should I leave? No, you shouldn't leave. You should stay committed. If perhaps you might lead that unbelieving spouse to Jesus Christ. But if you are at a place where you're single and you're looking for your life's mate, don't be unequally yoked. Don't date unbelievers. Don't marry an unbeliever. Why? Why would God say that? Because God loves you, that's why. He doesn't want you and someone else pulling in opposite directions and making your life miserable. 
So out of love, God says that you are to stay equally yoked rather than unequally yoked. I like verse 12. They didn't know what to do. They didn't act rashly. They put him into custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. In other words, they waited on God. And you know, I find that to be true in the early church. They didn't know what to do. They, they prayed. They asked God. And the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 13, said, Separate unto me Saul and Barnabas for the work whereunto I have called them. So they laid hands on them and sent them away. They waited on God. They prayed. They fasted. They waited. God spoke. They did it. Acts chapter 15, they didn't know what to do. They had a convention about how can a Gentile be saved? Does he have to be circumcised? Does he have to keep the Torah, the law of Moses? And so they got together. And they waited on God. Now, I don't think things have changed much. I think God will reveal His will to His people. It seems that the tendency in a modern, technological, advanced, smart age is to say, gee, Holy Spirit, we're sure thankful for all the work you've done back then. But now we've got computers. We've got Microsoft Anointing 5.1. We've got clever committees. We've got seminaries after all. We're so brilliant now. We can figure this out on our own. Our committee will take care of it. Rather than just waiting on God, what do you want? Let's pray about it. The mind of the Lord might be known. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take outside the camp him who is cursed and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. And then you shall speak to the children of Israel saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death and all the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. Whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger, for the one from your own country. I am the Lord your God. Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel. They took outside the camp him who had cursed and stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now that's a grim narrative. The outcome is grim. Sobering. And I think everybody who was of the mixed multitude that day said, Whoa! I'm not going to do that. I say that's a deterrent. I know the experts say, Well, you know, those kind of things, they never really deter anybody. I would be deterred if I knew that they'd play a rock concert on my head. I'm going to get stoned to death. I don't think I'd be out there cursing the name of the Lord when I saw what just happened to somebody. Capital punishment. Ah, no thanks. There's other ways to venture anger. But what I like 
about this is, again, they waited to get the mind of God. Now, I think that strategy is important, but I think God-led strategy is imperative. I think that God has a plan to reach every single community with the gospel, to make an impact on every single community. I don't think, though, you can take one person's way of doing it and just say, okay, let's just copy exactly that and do it. It's not a franchise. I think we need to seek the mind of God. You know, when Paul the Apostle was in Athens, he walked around the city, got the feel of it, looked it over. And then his heart was grieved within him as he saw the city was wholly given over to idolatry. He saw the amount of gods around the Areopagus. And he went to the top of the Areopagus and Mars Hill and he spoke with the Athenian philosophers and shared the gospel and the resurrection with a select group of people first. And the gospel penetrated Athens, but he first walked around the city. And I remember a guy came to town some years back and was convinced that he had a plan for the city of Albuquerque. And I was grateful that he did and wanting to accommodate him and be a part of it. He said, God has called me here to raise up a church and I've done a demographic study. I found out the mean age and the uh, 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 how much income people make in different places. And I have found the right place, the perfect spot to have a church. I said, let me ask you just a simple question. Given all that you know about your demographics and your study, you know where our church sits. Would you say we're in a good spot? Now, not that I cared, but I was interested. He said, you know, I just got to tell you, you know, between you and me, it's a bad place. Industrial area is not a good place. Okay. But I've got this plan and I've... I know exactly, the studies show that if we reach people with this program and this thing, he had it all mapped out. I said, listen, I'll be praying for you and I'm with you and I, anything I can do to help. And his fellowship never took off. He tried for several years. And he came up to me and at the end he just said, I want you to know that I've enjoyed my stay here in town and I would like to keep you as a point of reference wherever I go, if I could just call you and ask you some questions. And he said, you know, obviously the, the going about it like this, finding the demographics in the right study, just it's not the way to do it. I think it's best to just let God lead you rather than let man dictate what's the best. Just let God lead you. So he says, I think God's leading me elsewhere and I'm going to start a new work, but it's going to be different this time. I'm going to wait on God. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Some of you are facing some insurmountable odds, heavy-duty circumstances. What am I going to do? What should I do? Hey, lay it before God. You might not get an answer right away. You might not get an answer at all. You might be just led supernaturally, naturally. But one day you'll look back and you'll go, God led me. He was directing me. Unbeknownst to me, it was not obvious at the time, but I see it clearly now. Lay it out before God and wait on Him. Now in Acts, uh, Acts, Sunday morning, Sunday night, gets merged. Leviticus 25, the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land 
which I give you. Now remember, they're in the desert at this point. They're camped around Mount Sinai. The law has been given to them. And the law is not just the Ten Commandments. This is the law. It's given to them. When you come into the land which I give you, it's the land of Canaan, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field. Six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruit. Now, agriculture was one of the primary activities of Israel when they got into the land. Raising cattle, their herds, their flocks, sheep as well, and agriculture. They were very primary. Now, in Egypt, the Egyptians were masters at agriculture. They had it down. They took the Nile River, diverted it, and they had these pumps. They're like bicycles. You can still see them in India today. They're little wheels. Uh, water wheels, and they got pedals attached to them, and the guy will sit out there and he'll just pedal. And they're fun to operate. It takes the water and diverts it from one place into another canal, and they water all their fields with a foot pump. Egypt doesn't have a rainfall. Israel has a pretty good rainfall, generally. God said in Deuteronomy 11... The land that I am bringing you into is not like the land of Egypt where you watered your garden by foot. I first read that. I said, watered it by foot. Until I understood that it's the foot pump that they use, the bicycle pump. You watered it by foot. It's not like Egypt. The land that I am bringing you into is a land of hills and valleys which drinketh the water from the rain of heaven. If you obey me, God said, I'll send rain. If you don't obey me, you won't get rain. But then it says, it's a land for which the Lord your God cares. His eyes are always on it from the beginning of the year, even to the very end of the year. The Lord's eyes are always on that land. That's the land I'm bringing you into. So when they went from Egypt through Sinai, they got into Israel. They found that it was truly a land of milk and honey. It's got many hills and valleys. So when it rains, water is diverted down the gullies, settles in the lowlands. The Shephelah plains of Israel are uh, rich, dense, dark soil, very conducive to grow just about anything. It grows of itself in some of those valleys. And so their life was surrounded with agriculture. They would plant, they would sow, they would then reap the land. Now, in the autumn period of the year, is when they would sow their crops in Israel. Because the early rains start uh, right after the autumnal equinox in the month of Tishri, the seventh month of the Israeli calendar. So they plant. And the first six months of the year is planting. The second six months is when they ingather. Everything grows of itself. Um, The month of Nisan, which is actually the first month of their religious calendar, is when they start bringing in the sheaves. Starting with the barley, right around March, it starts to green up. They pick it uh, after Passover. They have that sheaf wave offering before the Lord that we read about last week. The Feast of First Fruits. They count 50 days. That's Pentecost. That's when the wheat ripens and they're bringing in the crops. So it would be a land where God would bless them. But the land itself needed a rest, as we read about here in the first several verses. Um, I've got a lot of stuff in my mind. I'm trying to sort it out. 
three times a year, Israel was commanded to bring all of the males within a certain proximity and go to Jerusalem. Remember those feasts? Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths, Tabernacles, right? I found an interesting article. Now, for some people, that's hard. You've got to leave your family, your farms, all the work. What if I leave, you know, and they attack my land? I, you know, Israel would be vulnerable having all the men in Jerusalem leaving the women and the children in all of those outlying areas. Anybody could attack them and kill them. Sounds like a strange command. But I found an interesting article. A scholar noted, during the whole period between Moses and Jesus Christ, we never read of a single enemy invading the land at the time of these three festivals. The first instance on record is 33 years after they had withdrawn themselves from the divine protection by embrewing their hands in the Savior's blood. When Cestius, the Roman general, slew 50 of the people of Lydda, while all the rest had gone up to the Feast of Tabernacles in A.D. 66. But isn't it interesting, between Moses and Christ leaving their land vulnerable in obedience to God, they were never attacked. Now God tells them something further. The land itself needs a rest. That sounds strange to us. You say, okay, well, I need a rest. What do you mean my land needs a rest? There's a pattern of six and one. Six days you work, one day you cruise, you hang, you rest. You don't do any work. No customary work is done. That's a pattern established from Genesis and creation, reiterated in the wilderness when manna was given, and then instituted from Mount Sinai as a part of their regular law, where they would keep it week after week. Six and one. But not only shall you rest, not only shall your animals rest, but the dirt, the land, needs a rest. Now, we know that you can overwork any piece of property. You can stick uh, chemicals in the soil. You can make it work hard. You, you can uh, up the production, but the land itself, uh, the productivity can decrease unless you give the land a break, give it a rest. So this is what they were to do. Now, now picture this, especially if you're a farmer. Most of them were imbued in agriculture. Six years you work, you sow, grows, you harvest it, you do it for six years. The seventh year, for a whole year, you don't do any of it. You say, how will you live? God would so bless the land that whatever would grow of itself, spontaneously, you could go out and get it. Now, you couldn't market it, you couldn't sell it, you couldn't harvest it. You just go out and get it. And God said, I'll make sure the land will produce. Isn't that a great system? A whole year, you're, you're just in cruise mode. You know that neighbor, I haven't seen him for so long. I've been working so hard the last several years. Let's take a little vacation, four months. Spend time with them and see some of the other people. Let's go down and go to the coast, go to the beach. Waves are great down there in Joppa. You know, we can just hang for a whole year while the land was resting. Now... This did a couple of very interesting things. Number one, it put the very rich and the very poor on equal footing for one-seventh of the time. Both of them had free access to the fields. The rich, those who were landowners, could not 
work the fields and sell the produce. Those who were poor had free access to it all the time being poor. They could just go in and take it. So they were on equal footing, not one above the other. God was caring for the poor. And God was reminding the rich that they're, it's an open field, it's a level playing field. There was a problem. As you read Jewish history, we don't read that this was practiced. In fact, it wasn't practiced for 490 years. They got greedy. Ah, what will it hurt? You know, maybe when God said, let the land rest, He meant it in a spiritual term. It really didn't apply literally. You can't take this book literally. So they didn't take it literally. One problem, God did. And for 490 years, or 70 Sabbath years, the land did not get its rest. So in Second Chronicles we read that God took them into captivity in Babylon that the land might enjoy her Sabbaths for 70 years. Okay, you have six and one. 490 years of not doing it is 70 Sabbath years they have failed to keep it. God took them into captivity for 70 years, took them completely out of their land, so giving the land rest for 70 years. He was in effect saying, you owe me 70 years and I'm going to take it out. And when the 70 years were completed, then the children of Israel came from Babylon and came back to Jerusalem. But it was because Second Chronicles 36, I think, is the chapter that tells us that it was the, they failed to keep the Sabbath year. Verse 4. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither uh, sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for you and your servant, for your maidservant, for your hired servant, for the stranger who sojourns with you, for your livestock and all the animals that are in your land. And all of its produce shall be for food. And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. Seven times seven years. That's 49 years. And the time of seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. And you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the Day of Atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout your land. Now this is called the Jubilee year. Shinath Ha-Yobel, the sounding of the ram's horn, the Jubilee year. Forty-nine years, fiftieth year is the Jubilee. On that year, the land would go back to its original owners, family and tribe. Debts were canceled, slaves would go free. It was a year of jubilee. It happened on Yom Kippur, which was a solemn day. That's when you'd blow the trumpet and begin the year. But the 50th year was also a rest, which would mean this. The 49th year of this cycle is the cruise, kickback, hangout year. Whatever grows spontaneously, you take. The 50th year was also a rest year. So you had two years off every 50 years which would mean that the 48th year of the cycle, God would abundantly bless so that you had enough for year one and year two because you couldn't work during that jubilee year. Okay, 
Jubilee, Yobel, the blowing of the ram's horn. The root word goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. There's a guy by the name of Jubal that is mentioned, the father of all those who play the flute, the father of music. Guys would go out and hunt perhaps, come back at night, there'd be Jubal, you know, playing a tune. They were soothed by it. He became the father of music. His name, Jubal, to rejoice, uh, went down through history, and Jubilee has its uh, linguistic tie-in with his name. But it's the blowing of the ram's horn. They would shout it, uh, or they would blow it on the Day of Atonement, verse 9. You shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. Um, uh, just a moment. I brought, you know, it always helps to see, doesn't it? This is a shofar. Shofar, show good, right? This is the ram's horn. It's a real one. It uh, was purchased in Jerusalem in the ultra-Orthodox section of Jerusalem, Measherim. I was with my tour guide. He knows all the spots. And I said, David, take me so that I can buy what is sounded on the festivals uh, and what brings in the Sabbath and what would be typical in Israel even in ancient times. He says, I know exactly what you need. Now there's different shapes of these horns. Sometimes they have the real big ones. This is kind of the designated horn for the uh, Jubilee year. So I thought, since I have it here, that I would make myself very vulnerable and try to give you the sound even of what it was like as the Jubilee year would start. You ready? Now, now pray for me here. It's not that easy. And you can't laugh, because if I laugh, I can't do it. That's the blowing of the trumpet, the shofar, the jubilee is now intact. You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty through all the land, to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for, year, uh, for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. The 50th year shall be a jubilee to you. You shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord. Gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat the produce from the field. It's the year of jubilee. Each of you shall return to his possession. And he reiterates much of the same uh, in the next few verses. Now the arrangement is simple. Look at verse 16. According to the multitude of years, you shall increase the price of the land. And according to the fewer number of years, you shall diminish its price. For he sells to you according to the number of the years of the crops. Therefore, you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord, your God. Now, the arrangement was quite simple. The land was never sold permanently. God says, it's mine, it shall never be sold. It was on a 50-year lease. If there were 40 years between today, if 
we were selling the land and the Jubilee. We have 40 years left. 10 years ago was the last Jubilee. There's 40 years. The land would go for a lot more than if, say, there were 10 or 5 years to the Jubilee. On Jubilee, if it's my land, it goes back to me. It's a 50-year lease. So that there's no family that would be deprived. When Joshua would enter the land, he divvied it up to tribes, and the families within the tribes got an allotment. So people wouldn't be homeless. They wouldn't lack possession. They would always be cared for. In Israel today, they don't have the Jubilee with the 50 years, but today you can't own land permanently. It's a 99-year lease. Now, who cares if you can own land or not? I mean, 99 years, you're not going to be here. But it stays in the family, then it reverts back to the government. That's how they have it. It's under a lease program. And so the Jubilee was much like that. I want you to look down at verse 23. The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. Now today we've got Palestinians and we've got Israelis fighting. Whose land is it? It's God's land. It's His. He said, it's mine, it shall never be sold permanently. And in all the land of your possession you shall grant redemption of the land if one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession. And if his kinsman redeemer comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother has sold. Or if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, then let him count the years since its sale and restore the balance to the man who has sold it, that he may return to his possession. Now, another problem could potentially arise. That is, let's say I lost my land shortly after the Jubilee. Now, at my age, that means that it's going to be a real work of God for me to live to the next Jubilee to get my land back. I'm not going to be around. I'm not going to, in 50 years, you know, I'm, even if I'm around, I'm in no condition to reclaim it. So, if you had a rich relative who was willing and able to redeem the land for you, he could do it. So it would get you off the hook. Now we find this in the book of Ruth, right? There's a man named Elimelech from the land of Bethlehem. But there's a famine in Bethlehem. He has to leave and forsake his land. He takes with him his wife Naomi, his two kids, his two boys, Malon and Chilion, which incidentally means sickly and pining, and take them over to Moab, where they hang out for ten years. In Moab, Elimelech dies. Naomi is now bereft of her husband. She's got her two boys. What a comfort they were, sickly and pining. They marry two Moabite women. Oprah? No, not Oprah. Orpah. No, it really was Oprah. I just wanted you to know that in the original Hebrew. No, I'm just kidding. It was Orpah and Ruth. Malon and Chilion died, sickly and pining, for a probably obvious reason. They were self-fulfilled prophecy. They probably were sick to begin with. They died in Moab, so you have these three gals and 
Naomi says, look, I'm going back home. You gals stay here. I'm not going to drag you back to a place that's not your own, to Bethlehem. You just stay here. And, of course, Ruth says that famous thing, wherever you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She makes a covenant with Naomi, goes back to Bethlehem. And she finds in Bethlehem a man by the name of Boaz who is related to her. He is the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. So Naomi playing matchmaker thinks, okay, I can get this daughter-in-law of mine hooked up with Boaz. He can redeem the land and marry her, keep the seed going, and it's a match made in heaven. And so we get to chapter 3 where he finds out about it. He's willing to do it, but he said, well, there's a kinsman closer than I am. He has the right of redemption. They go to him and he says, look, I can do it. I can buy the land, but I can't marry Ruth. I'm already married. So it turns out that Boaz marries Ruth, redeems the land, and it goes back to the family once again because of this law that was instituted in Israel. So the land shall not be sold permanently. Um, uh, Further laws are given about if you lived in a, a walled city or if you lived in a city without walls. If you lived in a city with walls, uh, down in uh, verses uh, 30 through 34, it was very valuable. You paid premium price to live in a walled city because of the protection that a walled city provides. Uh, the land improvements because of the building of houses, the deed restrictions and so forth. You know, living out in the land open it wasn't worth as much. Now, if you sold your house to a man, if you lived in a walled city, you had a year to buy it back. Somehow get the bucks and pay the guy. You could have it back. But if you couldn't do it within a year, tough toast. It belongs to the man who bought it. It's an insurance policy for the man who bought it, so he didn't have to move again. And you couldn't get it back at Jubilee. Your land in the open field or your home in the open field, you could, but in a walled city... The man who bought it, it was his. In verses 35 to 38, the poor are considered. And part of the Jubilee year and the Sabbath was for the poor of the land. You could lend to them, but not with interest. Uh, In verses 39 and so on, uh, through the end of the chapter, are laws for slaves. And uh, you could buy a slave, but on Jubilee the slaves would go free. They go back to uh, their real estate and you couldn't own them anymore. You could buy them according to where the Jubilee would sit in that 50-year cycle. Um, I I sort of want to go quickly because I want to bring some prophetic relevance, I think, to this. Uh, Verse 51, if there are still many years remaining according to them, he shall repay the price of the redemption from the money with which he was bought. Uh, But if there remain a few years until the Jubilee, then he shall reckon with him, and according to his years he shall repay him the price of his redemption. He shall be with him as a yearly hired servant. He shall not rule with rigor over him in your sight. If he is not redeemed in these years, he shall be released in the year of Jubilee, both he and his children with him. For the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants whom I bought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. All right, now... Jubilee year, slaves were set free. The land went back to its original owner. It was a year of freedom, a year of redemption, celebration, provision. Jubilee years 
were not really kept as far as we know. On a, we, we can't trace them. Uh, it was kept, not kept for a long time, but if you were to trace it historically, when you could find record of Jubilees being kept, was about 1393 B.C. That's about as far back as you can go and you have record of them keeping the Jubilee, the cycle of 49 and 1. Now, if that figure is accurate, and we think it is, 1393 B.C., that means that in the New Testament, 29, the year 29, was a year of Jubilee. In the year 29, shortly after the inauguration of the Jubilee year, Jesus stood in the synagogue in Nazareth and read a very, very interesting scripture. And he said it was fulfilled. It was Isaiah 61. He opened the scroll and it just happened to be Isaiah 61 that day. And so he opened it up and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's reading Isaiah 61. It's found in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are captive, and to proclaim the acceptable year of our God. He closed the scroll and he said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He left out a very important passage of Isaiah 61. The rest of that verse says not only the acceptable year of our God, but it says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Why did he leave that out? Because this isn't the day of vengeance. It's the day of grace. He had come to give jubilee, freedom, life to people. Set them free from their sin. Take them away from the captivity that the devil had had over their lives. The year of Jubilee. The day of vengeance of our God, when God judges the earth in tribulation, is for a future date. Now I think that's fascinating. And I also see the fulfillment of another Jubilee in the book of Revelation. I want you to turn with me quickly to Revelation chapter 5. We have three minutes to do this. Now, Revelation chapter 5 has a scroll sealed with seven seals in the hand of him who sits on the throne. It's very reminiscent of Jewish real estate contracts. Whenever you sold a piece of property or forfeited that piece of property, there was a redemptive clause in the contract. If you could fulfill the requirements and if you were willing to do it, then, and if you could fulfill that redemptive clause and you could prove that you could do it, you could get back your property. The transaction was made by taking a scroll and having a duplicate copy of the scroll. One you would keep to prove it's yours. The other one you would seal in a jar with seals, put it in the ground. You'd lick it or put uh, clay tabs across it, seven seals in this case, and you'd stick it in a clay jar and you'd keep it in a safe place, sort of the bank contract. In Jeremiah chapter 32, Jeremiah is in jail because he predicted the truth. The captivity was coming, he said. Nobody wanted to believe it. They threw him in jail. His cousin Hanamiel comes. He says, Jer, I'm paraphrasing it. Bring a little color to it. Jeremiah, 
There's some land that has come up for redemption. You're able to buy it. It's in your family. It's just north of here. Buy the property. Redeem the property as kinsmen. Now you'd think it'd be idiotic for Jeremiah to do this because he just predicted that the land would be taken captive. The Babylonians would have it. Why should I buy land that's going to be of no value? Unless he believed God's promises, which he did, that the land would be taken captive but then go back to Israel after 70 years. So he buys the land. He takes the scroll, seals a copy of it, and buries it in the ground in a clay jar. So whenever there's a scroll with seals, it's reminiscent of a real estate contract, a title deed, if you will. Now, Revelation 5 is the greatest record real estate contract and real estate deal in history. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. Now, I believe, given the background, the context, and the language, that the scroll is the title deed to the earth. God created it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He gave it to man to manage. Man sinned, mortgaging that to the devil. The devil is called the God of this age. God of this world. Satan took Jesus on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the earth, and said, Hey, just indulge me. Kneel down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth, for they are mine, and I give them to whosoever I will. Jesus did not dispute that fact. A usurper was in the, working in the minds of this age, the worldly system, the cosmos in the New Testament sense. It's God's. God entrusted it to man. Man mortgaged it to the devil. And now, in heaven, the title deed to the earth. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to look at it. Now, what he's saying basically is no one can fulfill the qualifications that he saw in heaven, earth, or anywhere of that redemptive clause. There's no Goel. There's no kinsman redeemer. Now, that helps us to understand the next verse. So I wept much, literally convulsively, out loud I wept, uncontrollably. Because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Now, ultimately, Satan is defeated at the cross. But he has not yet laid down his weapons. He knows his time is short. He's ripping people off. He's lying to them. He wants to take as many souls as he can. The tribulation is about to unfold with seven seal judgments, seven bowl judgments, seven trumpet judgments. And through that, God, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is reclaiming the earth back to its original owner. It's a time of jubilee. The captives of the earth are about to go free. The land goes back to its original owner. It's the day of vengeance of our God, fulfilling the rest of Isaiah 61. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seals. And I looked... In the midst of the throne, 
and of the four living creatures. And in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. He's told, look, the lion. So he looks expecting to see a lion and he sees a lamb. It's the lion of Judah, but it's a lamb as though it had been slain. He could fulfill the qualifications for redemption. How? By his blood. Being the kinsman redeemer. No one was worthy. He was worthy. And they sing in just a few moments. Read the rest of the chapter when you go. He is worthy to take the scroll and loose its seals. For you have redeemed us out of every kindred, tribe, nation, and made us priests to our God. Jesus Christ will one day fulfill that latter part of Isaiah 61, the day of vengeance, as he opens the seals, and each seal that he opens is judgment upon the earth. And the earth gets reclaimed back to God, its original owner. It's the final day of judgment, and it's the final day of redemption that ushers in the kingdom age. When Jesus was on the cross, you remember what the last words he said? It is finished. The Greek to telestai, literally translated paid in full. He is worthy because it's been paid in full by his blood to redeem you back to God. Now, I want to personalize this. I see the fulfillment in the future before the tribulation period is the final year of Jubilee. What about you, though? Are you still shackled? Are you still bound? Have you left your original owner? Have you forsaken the owner's manual? Have you tried to live life on your own? You've been caught up in all sorts of things that bind you. You feel like you're trapped. Tonight could be the beginning of your jubilee. It could be your setting free, canceling all the debts, and you going back to your original owner. As we pray tonight, as we close the service, we're doing that in just a moment. Consider your own life. Consider where you're at in your relationship with God. Ask yourself if your heart is right with God, if your sins have been washed away. If you find that there's something lacking in your life, you need to come by faith to Him. Recognize that your life isn't what it ought to be, that you're still in sin. Ask God to wash it away. Surrender your life to the Lamb of God who died on the cross to take away your sins, to set the captives free, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Father, our prayer tonight, after considering the details of this study, we want to personalize it, Lord, as always. We want to evaluate our present circumstances in the light of eternal truth. You know our hearts. 
And we individually know where we're at tonight. Lord, I pray for those who may have come to the service, who acknowledge at this point that their life is not right in the sight of God. Their heart is not right. Inside, they're really crying out to be set free, to have the debt that they have against heaven taken away in a race tonight. Lord, we know that it can only come by our kinsman, Redeemer, the Lamb which takes away the sin of the world. Father, we pray that you would simply but powerfully now touch those spiritually in the hearts of men and women right now in this auditorium.